God. Let me tell you a story about a man named Archimedes. Archimedes was a scientist, an engineer, and a mathematician. In ancient Greece, he lived about 250 years before Christ. He's noted for a number of things. For example, he created a thing that we call today an odometer. A cart dropped a small ball into a cylinder after every mile that it traveled. That way, the people that were pulling the wagon would know how many miles they had traveled. During wartime, as another example, he worked on improving the catapult theory so that the cliffs around Greece would be protected by accurate and strong catapults. But he's probably best known for discovering buoyancy. The king worried whether or not a crown was gift, that was gifted to him was actually genuine gold. He asked Archimedes to help him determine whether or not this was so. Well, at first, Archimedes was stumped until he got into the bathtub and watched the water level rise. He realized at that moment something important. The submerged crown would displace an amount of water that would be equal to its own volume. By dividing the weight of the crown by the volume of water displaced, he could determine the density. He was so excited about the discovery that he went through the street naked, screaming, Eureka! Eureka! Supposedly, oh, by the way, the crown was not pure gold. Supposedly, Archimedes, at some point in his career, was asked an interesting question. Is there anything you can't do, Archimedes? He simply replied, if I had a stick big enough, I would be able to move the world. Well, about 200 years after Archimedes, God would use a stick big enough to move the world. And that stick would be the cross of Christ. Ladies and gentlemen, we can be wrong about a number of things and still be genuine Christians. In fact, I'm sure that that is the very case with many of us. None of us has perfect knowledge, amen? But we cannot and we must not be wrong about Christ and his cross. It is the stick by which God moves the world. Four simple points for you this morning. Jesus is beaten. Jesus is delivered. Jesus is crucified. And finally, Jesus is buried. You can tell from the points that I've just announced to you this morning that John 19 is not going to be an easy and lighthearted chapter for us to go through. Nevertheless, everything in God's Word is equally God's Word. The difficult texts as well as the easy texts. So if we will give it due attention this morning, let's begin with our first point. Jesus is beaten. This is found in verses 1 through 11. First, the text immediately talks to us about the consequences that Jesus endured for his ministry and his life and his personhood before the crucifixion. 
It was an actual beating. Verses 1 through 3 say, Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. Verse 2, The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail the king of Jews. And they struck him with their hands. First, Jesus is flogged. This would have been brutal. This consisted of being whipped by a cat of nine tails, a whip with a long handle, about a foot long or so, that was singular and sturdy, that broke into nine tails of rope or leather. And the tails had at the end of them tied bone and metal and glass weaved into their tips so that each time they made contact with a victim's flesh, they would tear chunks and strips out of their back as it was pulled from them. It was popularly called 40 minus 1. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 24, Five times I received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes minus 1. They used to call it 40 minus 1 because they said if you received the 40th lash, it would kill you. So first of all, Jesus is flogged. And then secondly, Jesus has put on him a crown of thorns and a purple robe. The thorns, of course, are native to Judea. They would have been long thorns, two to three inches, not a thorn like we would see in a typical rose bush, but those thorns that we see commonly on palm trees here in South Florida. They're long, they're sharp, and they are hurtful. They would have cut into Jesus' flesh as they pressed down the, co- the crown of thorns on his head and most probably even punctured his, his eye sockets and his ears. This would have been not a minor inconvenience. This would have been significantly painful. They topped off the crown of thorns with a purple robe. Of course, a crown and a robe, items donned by a king, Jesus is being mocked. Thirdly, he's mocked and he is struck again. Verse 3, look at it with your eyes. It says that they said, Hail the king of the Jews! And they struck him again. That word there for struck is the Greek word rapisma. And it refers to a sharp blow with a flat, open hand. It's an open-handed slap, if you will. It literally can be translated this way. They kept giving him blows with their hands. Interestingly enough, I think this is Pilate re-attempting to do something that might placate the Jews and allow him to set Jesus free maybe exonerating him from any guilt. I think Pilate is thinking, if I give him a good enough beating, they'll say, okay, that's sufficient, and I'll be exonerated from this man's life and possibly death. The Jews will be placated, and he can go about his business. 
But the Jews weren't taking no for an answer. Apparently, because of the point that they make in verse 7. This is important. Look at it with your eyes. We have a law, they said. And according to that law, he ought to what? He ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. In his commentary, Calvin writes these words. We see here the amazing cruelty of the Jewish nation whose minds are not moved to compassion by so piteous a spectacle. But all this is directed by God in order to reconcile the world to himself by the death of his son. So first of all, we see this morning in the early portions of our text that Jesus is beaten. The second point that we see is that Jesus is delivered. Verses 12 through 16, Jesus is delivered. When Pilate finally realizes that even with the beating, even with the mocking, even with the humiliation, the Jews aren't going to let Pilate slide on this issue of Jesus and his being crucified, he starts getting sober about it. In verse 8, in fact, it says that he's becoming more afraid. He's realizing that, one, they won't give this up, and two, he's just whipped a religious man against whom there can be found no charges. Are you sure that you want me to deliver this king of the Jews? That's essentially what Pilate is asking this mob of Jewish people. And they answer later, the chief priests in verse 15, we have no king but Caesar. Again, a commentator writes, this is a display of shocking madness. That the priests who ought to have been well acquainted with the law reject Christ in whom the salvation of the people was wholly contained, on whom all the promises depended, and on whom the whole of their religion was founded. And indeed, by rejecting Christ, they deprive themselves of the grace of God and every blessing. We have no king but Caesar. Church, if you swear your allegiance to someone, then you can't swear it to Jesus. And if you won't swear your allegiance to Jesus, then you have to put your allegiance somewhere else. These supposed religious people who have resentfully lived under the oppression of the Romans for years are voluntarily swearing allegiance to Caesar, a godless, pagan emperor who doesn't care about Jehovah or his people just because they can't abide Jesus. Church, let me pause here for a moment and bring this point of application home to you. 
There are people who will gladly align themselves with any and every policy and doctrine that comes down the pike, as long as that policy and doctrine does not align itself with Christ Jesus. The sooner you appreciate this truth and reality, the sooner the world will make sense to you. Jesus said himself, I came not to bring peace, but a sword. And I will make a man's enemies those of his own household. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't love our family. It doesn't mean that our family shouldn't love us. What it means is that when you become a Christian, you have aligned yourself with the one man who creates a division in every aspect of your life even that of blood. Why wouldn't we expect it in something like politics? We have no king but Caesar. Well, of course you'd say that now because it serves. It serves your purpose of crucifying the one person who called you what you were. Verse 16 says, So he delivers him over to them, to be crucified. And this brings us to our third point this morning. Jesus has been beaten. Jesus was delivered, as it says in verse 16. And thirdly, verses 17 through 42, Jesus is crucified. Let me read it for you, since we haven't gotten that far yet. It says, So they took Jesus. Verse 17, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Don't write this, the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I'm the king of the Jews. To which Pilate answers, I have written what I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, which says, they divided my garments among them. And for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, 
the disciple took her to his own home. I'm going to stop there. This is the climax of the chapter. Indeed, this is the climax of the ministry of Jesus Christ, his crucifixion. Now, let's break this down. What exactly is a crucifixion? Crucifixion was a method of, method of torturous death developed mainly by the Persians. It was used somewhat by the Greeks, although they weren't necessarily fans of it. Finally, it was really used, and we might even say perfected, by the Romans. They could keep a victim alive for days and days on a cross, postponing their death and exacerbating their pain. One scholar, Henry Dosker, writes this, quote, The length of this agony was wholly determined by the constitution of the victim, but death rarely ensued before 36 hours had elapsed. Some of you are going to get up from that pew after my 45-minute sermon, and you're going to go, oh, my hip. Because you're sitting on a comfortable pew in one position for 45 minutes. Imagine hanging on a cross for two and a half days. It always started with the cross beam, what is called the patibulum. John says in verse 17, if you look at it, that Jesus went out carrying his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha, this wouldn't have been the entire cross. This would have been just the actual cross beam itself, the, the patibulum, which interestingly enough weighed approximately 110 pounds. These are almost like railroad ties, if you can picture that in your mind. The Greek philosopher Plutarch said, each criminal, as part of his punishment, carries his own cross on his back. This is part of the punishment, part of the humiliation. Now, just to rewind a bit and recap on what we have discovered thus far in the last two weeks. Jesus prays over his disciples, and not only over those disciples, but all, on the, but all of the disciples who would come to faith as a result of their faithful preaching, right? John 17. In John 18, he goes through a series of hearings, some legal, some illegal. But he's up all night being brought through these hearings. He's abused physically. He's abused physically, spiritually. Early morning, it says that Caiaphas brings Jesus to Pilate. Pilate says, I really want nothing to do with this, has a few conversations back and forth with Jesus, and tries to exonerate him and let him go. But the Jews say, we don't want Jesus, we want Barabbas. 
John says it's very clear in the original language that Barabbas wasn't just some criminal. He was the Barabbas. The Barabbas everybody knew. He was a criminal that was well known by name. And here we are this morning. Pilate, discovering that the Jews aren't going to let off easy on this, has Jesus flogged. And this is not just some sort of whipping which would have been bad enough as it is, but but Jesus is flogged by the cat of nine tails, pieces of bone and glass and metal, pulling the flesh off his back in chunks and in strips so that he's naked and bleeding and ashamed and humiliated, not because he's a sinner who deserves this awful beating, but because you're a sinner who deserves this awful judgment, because I'm a sinner who deserves this awful judgment. And that's not it. They take a crown of thorns, not, not only to, to beat him and to hurt him further, but to shame him and humiliate him and mock him. They throw the purple robe over, over him and they say, Hail to the Jews. Hail to the king of the Jews. Shall I let him go? Pilate asks in so many words, to which the Jews say, We have no king but Caesar, and he claims to be the Son of God, and according to our law, that means he must be put to death. He needs to be put to death. So Pilate delivers him to be crucified, and it says in verse 17 that they take the patibulum, they place it on his naked, bleeding, ravished back, and he begins to carry it. We know from Matthew and from Mark that this 110-pound beam, which probably would have been tiresome in and of itself if he had been kept up all night and not beaten, was so heavy that he was collapsing under the weight of the fact that he was carrying your sin and mine, carrying the grief of the fact that his father was stepping away from him, that he was being mocked and beaten and shamed and collapsing under the weight of not only that, but the beam in and of itself. It says that they compelled a man named Cyrus from Cyrene to carry it for him because he couldn't carry it anymore himself. And of course, Jesus eventually dies. But not before they put that patibulum on the post with Jesus lying flat on the ground on it. Taking the nails, they would have pierced his wrists and his ankle. And then once the patibulum was connected to the post itself, they would have gotten behind the post and lifted it up and it would have sunk, boom, into a hole in the ground. And his body would have yanked under the weight of the drop and the weight of his sheer exhaustion pulling on the tendons and ligaments in his ankles and wrists. In order to somehow evade the eventuality of John chapter 20, which is the resurrection of Jesus Christ, what we will discuss on Easter. 
anthropologists, philosophers, and liberal Bible teachers have tried to explain away the death of Christ because if there is no resurrection, they have reasoned in their mind, then he was either stolen after his death or he never actually died. This latter theory that Jesus never actually died when he was crucified is called the swoon theory. It holds no merit for a couple of reasons. The first of which is it's simply implausible that Jesus would merely swoon or faint or pass out after undergoing all that he's undergone. The sleepless night, the dehydration, the flogging, the beating, carrying the crossbeam, the patibulum to the place of crucifixion and then crucified. And he merely passed out? I don't think so. Even the criminals next to Jesus die as a result of their crucifixion. And their broken legs guaranteed that. We're going to get to that in a moment. Certainly then Jesus died too. There's no reason and certainly no evidence, biblically or historically, that Jesus merely passed out. Jesus died. The second confirmation of Christ's death on the cross is that of the piercing. If you look at the text, beginning in verse 28, after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put, it on, put a sponge in it full of sour wine on the hyssop, which was like a sponge. And they lifted it up to him, held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it's finished. He bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation... And so that the bodies would not remain on the Sabbath, on the, on the cross, excuse me, on the Sabbath, because that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Quote, not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture that says, quote, they will look on him whom they have pierced. You see, what happens when someone is put on a cross and left to die is that through the beating, through the exhaustion, through the time and dehydration, asphyxiation was inevitable. 
People who died on a cross died essentially of asphyxiation as the victim couldn't help but collapse of sheer exhaustion while hanging from the nails in their wrists and ankles. With broken legs, the criminals at the right and left hand of Jesus couldn't support themselves anymore. They couldn't lift themselves up for a gasp of air every now and then so their diaphragms would collapse and they wouldn't be able to lift themselves up anymore because a religious holiday had to be observed. And so it was important that we got this murder moving on, you know. Let's hurry this thing along. So they broke the legs of the people on the right and left hand of Jesus so that they couldn't lift themselves up anymore and would asphyxiate faster. But when they get to Jesus, they realize Jesus is already dead. Now, the two on the sides of him didn't go through what he went through. So it isn't a surprise that Jesus is already dead. It's almost an expectation at this part, a surprise if he would have lived any longer. Jesus being already dead, they took a spear and they drove it upward into his chest cavity. Him hanging at a height, the Roman soldier under Jesus would have driven it up through his abdomen and his diaphragm. Piercing his chest cavity, piercing his diaphragm and penetrating his heart. The flow of blood and water was most likely fluid from the pericardial sac. And tests performed on cadavers... When a chest is severely injured but not penetrated, hemorrhaging often occurs and a clear serum develops in the upper level of the chest while blood from the hemorrhaging, because of its weight and density, falls to the lower part of the chest, even the rib cage area. So when the spear came up into Jesus' abdomen, piercing toward his heart and chest cavity that would explain the flow of what was water and blood flowing freely out. However, the exact nature of this event unfolded, this much is certain. Jesus died on the cross that day. A painful death. A death as the innocent Lamb of God for sinners like you and me as the Son of God incarnate. John says later, He who saw it has borne witness and his testimony is true and he knows that what he's telling is the truth. John is speaking of himself here. We already know that he's there because he's referred to himself. He's there with Mary and Mary Magdalene. And even her sister, the scripture says, and Jesus looking down from the cross sees John. He sees his mother and he says to his mother, behold, your son, speaking of John. And he says to John, behold, your mother, because Jesus was adamant about the family of God trumping any other family. But as a son of Mary, he loves his mother. And even on the cross, even as the substitutionary lamb of God for sinners like you and me, Jesus looks down at his disciple and he says, in so many words, I want you to take care of my mother. And he says to his mother, I want you to take care of John, who's probably about 13 years old at this point. 
He's young. Of course, John says, from that point on, she lived at my house. At my family's house, which is a beautiful testament to the barriers that are broken down when we become members of the family of God. Amen? But those barriers are not broken without the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. John says, I was there. I saw it with my own eyes, he says. And he says that people should believe in Jesus because the testimony that he's giving is that testimony of an eyewitness account. This is not something I heard. This is not third century folklore. This is not something made up. This is something that John himself says, I saw it happen. This isn't myth. This isn't story. I was at the feet of Jesus. He even spoke to me while he was on the cross. I saw him get crucified, and I saw him die. And what's more, I saw him buried. This is to close out chapter 19 of John. If you look at it with your eyes, it says, verse 38, After these things, Joseph of Arimathea who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews. He asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and he took away his body. Nicodemus also, who early had come to Jesus by night, that's John chapter 3, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloth with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Finally, Jesus is buried. After the beating, after the deliverance, after the crucifixion, Jesus is buried. It was customary to bury bodies after wrapping them in linen cloths that had been soaked in ointments and oils. This did a couple of things. For one, as you might imagine, it was a pleasant fragrance and it battled against other smells that were unpleasant. John mentions this in verse 39. The myrrh and the aloe weighed an incredible amount of weight. It was 75 pounds. We're going to get to the details of the resurrection of Jesus Christ when we get to John chapter 20 in a couple of weeks. But suffice it to say for now that imagine what it must have been like to be wrapped tightly in linen cloths that were soaked in 70 pounds worth of ointment and aloe and myrrh. They took the body of Jesus, it says, bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. So Jesus' burial, like many other aspects of his life and of his ministry, is a fulfillment of prophecy. Verse 41 says, Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb. Say amen if you're listening. I think it's so incredibly interesting that John includes this detail. 
I think it's interesting that in no other gospel this is included, but in John's gospel is included, and I don't think that it was put there accidentally. I believe that he's giving us both a geographical location and a spiritual reality. Where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden. I think he does this because of what this event, namely the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God that would be slain for the, for the sins of the world. I think he shared this for a reason, with a purpose. You see, humankind was condemned as sinful because Adam sinned and fell as humanity's representative. And when he sinned and fell and condemned us all, he was in a garden. And now, here, Christ, who is working the work of redemption, who is doing the work that only he could do to undo the work that Adam did. John says, when Christ died, who is our second Adam, there was a garden. You see, in Christ, all things are made new. In Christ, what sin has undone, God makes new again. John chapter 19, verse 42 says that Jesus was placed in a tomb that had never been used. It was new. It was unused. It probably belonged, we believe, to Joseph of Arimathea. It was probably his plot. He probably already owned it. And because of the circumstances of our Lord's death and the circumstances of Joseph of Arimathea's faith, which he had kept hidden for so long, He asked Pilate that he might have the body of Jesus to give it a proper burial. And Pilate says, you can have the body, I don't care. Joseph of Arimathea takes the body, and typically, John John really, he's hard on people that aren't public about their faith. But, But I think he just gives this sort of parenthetical reference about Joseph of Arimathea. I think he noticed that he's a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews. He asked for advice. He kind of said, oh, secretly for fear of Jews, but he was a disciple of Jesus. I think John acknowledges Joseph of Arimathea's faith, but I think he also acknowledges the fact that it was difficult to be a Christian in those days because when the leaders found out that you loved Jesus, that you followed Jesus, they made your life very, very difficult. But not only is Joseph of Arimathea mentioned as a disciple of Jesus, but the person who brings the expensive spices and aloes and myrrh, the ointment with which they would soak the linen cloths and wrap the burial, uh, the burial clothing of, of Jesus, that person is Nicodemus. Well, you remember Nicodemus, John says, he's the guy that came to Jesus by night. So we see in the difficulty of Jesus reaching through the religious facade and grabbing people, he's successful because God's plan is never unsuccessful. Sometimes you and I, we share the faith, we share the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is the good news of what God has done for sinners in the death, burial, and resurrection 
of Jesus Christ. That is the gospel. By definition, we feel discouraged when we share the gospel with someone and they say, I'm not interested or I don't want to hear anything about it. And we feel like it might be something that we've done wrong. And you know what? We can all get better at sharing the gospel. But let me relieve you of something. Let me remind you of what Jesus said. All that the Father gives to me comes to me, and I will never cast them away. God is not wiping the sweat from his forehead and wringing his fingers and saying, I'm such a failure as a God. God had a plan for Joseph of Arimathea. God had a plan for Nicodemus. We don't know the plans that God has in store for the people we share the gospel with. That's God's business. Amen? Amen. All we know is that faith comes by hearing the word of Christ. That's Romans 10, 17. So keep sharing the gospel. You never know who God is working on, but you can know this. God has never saved anybody without the gospel. The gospel is always the means by which God saves sinners like you and me. And here we see that it might have taken some time for Joseph of Arimathea. It might have taken some time for Nicodemus. But isn't it a blessing that sometimes God is patient with us? It is a, isn't it a blessing that when we foul up and we make mistakes and we sin and we tell God, just one more time, please, sometimes God in his grace says, tomorrow won't be any more wasting time. Tomorrow I will grab you by my spirit. And you will be mine. I love the fact that John includes Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus in this record because if people can go to Jesus with their questions and come out the other side believing in him, loving him, following him, even placing themselves in public now, as we see, before those that don't believe and would potentially even persecute them, they can't help themselves. They have to do it. Say amen if you're listening. Church, there comes a time when we have to stop hiding. If you know, if you realize and appreciate what the Lord has done, if you're hearing this and learning about the severity of the crucifixion of Jesus for you and for me, and you're still hiding for some reason, come out! Come out from hiding! How can we not be public about our Lord when he publicly died a humiliating death for you and for me without hesitation? How can we be embarrassed or ashamed about being Christians when our Savior Jesus was not embarrassed or ashamed of us? Matthew 10, 32 and 33 say, so everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will deny before my Father in heaven. Church, come out. Now is the time to stand by the sound doctrine that we learn in the Scriptures. Now is the time to carry our convictions with love and tenacity. Now is the time to reach the lost. Now is the time to remember and to never forget. God help us to never forget the magnitude of the sacrifice that our Savior made for us.
In closing, Archimedes was once asked, is there anything you can't do? To which he responded, if I had a stick big enough, I would move the world. Some 200 years later, God moved the world with his own stick, the cross of his son, and he has been moving the world by that stick ever since. Ladies and gentlemen, we can be wrong about a number of things and still be genuine Christians. There are a lot of things that we probably are wrong about and we're going to learn about when we get to glory. But we cannot be wrong about this. We must not be wrong about this. That the Savior, Jesus Christ, died on a cross for sinners like you and me.